thank you all for being here today. I'm happy to be uh, hosting the panel. As you might have noticed, it's got a very broad name, Industry Roundtable, so we have a lot of leeway to touch on a bunch of topics, which is good given the experiences of the panelists. Uh, oh, thanks, Nicholas. Just a brief word on my own background. I am uh, an analyst in the Closing Fund and ETF research team at Morgan Stanley. I concentrate primarily on bond funds. In that group, we cover approximately 100 closed-end funds across categories, and we're located within the Wealth Management Investment Resources Department of Morgan Stanley. Uh, what I'd like to do now is just go straight to the panelists, ask them to each introduce themselves and say a word or two about their firm as well. Thanks, John. My name is Bob Bush. I'm a director of closed-end fund products at Calmos Investments. Uh, Calmos has about 23 billion assets under management. Uh, we're headquartered in Naperville, Illinois, but we have offices in Chicago, London, San Francisco. Uh, we're a global manager. Uh, we have about seven billion in closed-end funds. Um, we've uh, been an issuer since 2002. Uh, it's a very important business for us. Um, and through our funds, we um, uh, we manage convertibles, high-income equity. Um, and um, also uh, we have a convertible ARB strategy. So it's sort of a multifaceted approach through global, bond, uh, global funds, but also domestic funds as well. So we've got a booth outside and happy to chat with you ab about that if you'd like. Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, my name's Jonathan Isaac. Uh, I work at Eaton Vance where I'm director of product management. Um, I've been involved in the closed end fund world since about 2003. Uh, Eaton Vance runs about 470 billion now um, between retail and institutional um, assets. Um, and we manage in the open end, closed end, and, and separately managed account world. Um, and maybe important to say, the same managers are managing in all three of those worlds. Um, there are not particular managers for the closed end fund space. Um, our closed end assets are, I think, around 23 billion. Uh, which I think makes us uh, around the third largest um, of closed-end fund asset managers. Uh, our first fund was launched in 1998, um, and we really manage closed-ends, I think, across the board and across the spectrum that we manage other assets. So we have municipal funds, we have bank loan funds, we have uh, taxable fixed income funds, and uh, varieties of, of equity funds as well. Um, and Kind of, I think as Bob alluded to, we take the support of those uh, closed-end funds trading in the secondary market very seriously. Uh, we try to communicate through our extensive wholesaler force in the field. Um, we have a good web presence, I think, in terms of data and information around all of our products. Uh, and we think things like this are very important as well, sort of industry organizations, uh, a day like today, uh, an organization like the Closed-End Fund Association, Really, any uh, opportunity that we get to get in front of um, investors like you, uh, we think is very important. Hi, I'm Janice Kearns, and I'm the general counsel of Adams Funds, and we are a two-fund complex. We are two of the oldest closed-end funds in the country. We're 90 years old this year. Both funds were launched in 1929. We have about two and a half billion in assets under management. We have a large cap equity fund, which is just under two billion. And we have a, an energy sector fund that's around 600 million. Um, and I, I like to tell everybody that um, closed end funds have been around since the 80s. 
the 1880s. They have a very long and proven track record, and, and my co-panelists here are kind of the culmination of that. And we were there at the beginning, and, and we like to think that we have helped bring these guys into their success. Not, not the 1880s, though. We weren't around for that. <laughs> you, none of us were, thank <laughs> the Lord. But, <laughs> but yes, it's a very old and proven model, and, and it's fun to be a part of that. Thank you, Janice. Uh, Jonathan, it's been a really interesting last six months in the secondary market. Obviously, part of that was affected by tax loss selling, but also some tremendous moves in the underlying markets. Um, can you kind of walk us through that and give us your thoughts generally on the secondary market? Uh, sure, and I think, yeah, I think when we uh, had a chat to discuss this session, um, I used the term of roller coaster ride, uh, which I feel like what we've been on uh, for for the last, as you say, six, six probably almost exactly six months. Um, the end of last year, um, both in October and then again in December, saw, I think, sell-offs in the closed-end fund secondary market, uh, the like of which we've not seen probably since the financial crisis. Um, average discounts and just for reference, I think average discounts over the long period of time are around sort of 5%. Uh, average discounts across all, um, whatever it is, 500 uh, existing funds got to levels of 10% of, uh, discounts on average. Um, what was going on was, was I think a mix of what was affecting the underlying asset classes involved where, as, as you're all aware, several uh, took a, a, a huge tailspin, uh, the equity market, uh, what was going in the, on in the bank loan market and other credit markets at that time. Um, sprinkle in um, great uncertainty again at that time around the direction of, of rates um, and a, particularly to the, to the closed-end fund world of, of short-term interest rates and the impact that could have on the, the leverage that you know many of these funds use. Um, and you had what I would say, and I think I referenced earlier, I've been um, working with these products since about 2003, is a, a classic closed-end fund throw the baby out with the bathwater. Everything, regardless of what it was invested in, got sold. As John said, you had, in addition to that, um, tax loss selling, um, which has always been a, a factor in the closed-end fund space to the extent that there are losses to take. Um, but, but I think what we saw was you know, first of all, the sell-off in October, and then those people who wanted to take further losses uh, then did so again in December, which saw, uh, which saw these levels uh, become quite extended. Um, and then we had a turnaround, um, and you know, that was, I think, mainly driven by, I guess one could say, three things. One uh, was just the turnaround, the direction of the underlying uh, asset classes in which many of these funds are invested in themselves. Um, that obviously helps bolster net asset values, which helps bolster the, the, the market prices that are attached to those. Um, you saw more clarity and, and maybe a, a signs of a halt in the direction of, of rates um, or short-term rates, uh, which again, I think, gave people some comfort um, that, that perhaps uh, their fears about the cost of leverage and the, the, the uh, associated effect on the dividends in many funds was, was maybe overblown. Um, and then I think thirdly, and maybe most importantly, you saw profit taking or profit um, well, value um, driven investing 
in that people who have been around this market for long enough know that when you get to those extended levels, there is a, a massive opportunity. Um, and I think, again, we've, we've seen that time and time again in this space. Uh, I think today we see discount levels, again, on average around 5.5%, so very nearly back to what I would say is sort of historical norms. Um, people who took advantage of, of, of what we saw in, in either October or December, I'm sure, are, are pretty happy with, with what they've experienced, both in terms of, of the just underlying uh, asset class uh, recoveries that we've seen, but also the recovery in those, those uh, closed-end fund prices in the, in the secondary market. Um, the, the sort of outlook from here, which I'm sure we'll talk about some more, uh, I think will depend a lot of, on, on the direction, the further direction of, of rates um, and people's comfort with that. I guess one, one more thing to, to maybe mention in, in this is the recovery in the municipal funds, which I think got particularly badly hurt towards the end of last year. Um, we manage municipal funds both in the open-end fund and in the closed-end fund space, and I think a lot of what we've seen on the sort of tax front, um, some shocks that people have, have uh, experienced as far as their taxes for 2018, have driven flows into both the open-end fund mutual, uh, open-end mutual fund space of municipals, uh, but also in the closed-end space. So a combination of all of these things has led to a, a nice recovery year to date. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, Eaton Vance is one of the few firms that has closed-end funds across the three main areas of equities, munis, and taxable bond. Um, do you think there's one area there that stands out in terms of value more than the others, or perhaps a category or two within one of them? Uh, sure, I think, um, you know, just going back to that recovery, I think that recovery has been pretty broad-based, at least in our experience, it's been pretty broad-based. Broad uh, the one area that it has not occurred uh, would be in uh, the bank loan space, where there has been a recovery in the underlying asset class. I think prices of, of bank loans in December got down to maybe 93 cents on the dollar, something like that, and have traded back up maybe not to par, but to pretty close to par. Uh, the associated closed-end funds uh, invested in those bank loans have not recovered. I think discounts in that world remain in the 10, 11% kind of range. I'm sure a lot of that is associated to views on what the Fed is going to do. I think there's a, an association between, oh, these are floating rate funds, therefore I can only invest in them if, if I know that short-term rates are going up. I, my personal view is, I don't think short-term rates are going down anytime soon, and these funds are paying, I would say, pretty attractive uh, dividends at the current levels that they're at. Um, as we say, we've seen a great deal more solidity in the in the underlying asset class. So I'd say, you know, that seems to me to be an area that there is still uh, still opportunity. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Bob, I think that leads us naturally into the primary part of the market. Uh, there's clearly been some important developments there. Can you kind of take us through them and give us your thoughts as well? Sure. So a year ago when we were at this conference, I, I remember a, a fellow panelist um, made the comment that the closed-end fund market is broken. And I think I know what he was referring to was the IPO market. Um, we just weren't having new issuance coming out. There was the, the concern about these funds coming out. They would immediately go to discounts because of the load that was taken off. Um, to compensate the, the underwriters and for other expenses to get these deals done. So after they came out of syndicate support, they would immediately trade down to what their NAV was. Um, and that was a conundrum. 
um, what the market, the closed-end fund market, has done, and I think it's 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 pretty ingenious, and it's it's a very um, it's a very sturdy market. It does rise to the occasion uh, when it sees uh, that there needs to be changes, and so what they, what basically what the industry now has come to is the IPOs that have come out uh, in 2019 have effectively been no load. The load, the expense that would ordinarily be borne by the shareholder uh, on the IPO is now being picked up by the sponsor. Um, so in essence, when these funds come out, their initial IPO price will be the same as the NAV. They'll be flush. Um, and what we've seen is uh, those have traded very, very well. You saw part of that uh, in the preceding years with some of these term trust deals being done, these three, five-year bond deals being done, where part of it was subsidized, but not the entire portion. Um, to help the, the, the underwriters, I should say, to help the, uh, the sponsors recover from that, these terms now have come out a little bit longer, so they're no longer three or five years. Now the, the market really is saying 12 years, so it allows the, uh, the sponsor to recoup that initial upfront expense. I think the good thing about that is, too, what it's done is it's allowed the market now to expand, not just being in fixed income deals, the three and five year term. You really can't do, you can't do an equity fund. It's hard to do an equity fund with a three, five year term because God forbid you come out and the market bombs, you'll never really be able to catch up. But 12 years gives you enough leeway, I think, to be able to, to, to make good on it. Um, so what's happened is PIMCO came out uh, early part of this year in January and they raised about an $850 million deal, which really through this new structure, uh, through an energy deal. And energy had done well in the month, so it was a good, good product for them and it was a good time for it. Uh, that's traded very, very well. Uh, you've seen Tortoise uh, now come out with, uh, with a necessary assets deal. That was earlier in the spring. It was a smaller product, uh, raised about $150 million, but that is doing well as well. So now it looks like the market's beginning to open up with this new term, in essence, a no-load structure. And as you look at the business, the industry in general, this is really where we are going. I mean, you see these ETFs now that are, in essence, free. Uh, the margins are coming in quite tight in, in many of the financial products. And all this is a result of the, of the DOL uh, issues that came out over the course of the last few years. Now, that, that's gone away. But what hasn't gone away is the necessity, really, for the advisor to uh, justify what their fees are, what their expenses are. So that's put some pressure on the industry, which candidly, I think, is a, I think is a good thing. We should be able to justify why we're charging what we're charging. I think coming out with a no-load product is, is, is great. And uh, I think if it helps revitalize this business, revitalize this industry, be able to supply new products to our customers um, that are contemporary and have a reason to be, given the particular economic environment that we happen to be in at the time, I think it's all very good, so we're, we're, we're excited uh, about this market being revitalized, and I think that's a large part of it. Can I just make a couple of comments? I, I think one of the most encouraging things is um, the fact that this happened in January of this year with the backdrop of what I just described going on at the end of last year and the fact that deals could be done when everyone had just experienced the trauma, for want of a better word, of, of, of what had happened in the secondary market that time. Um, and I've, I've managed to speak to a couple of people involved on kind of either side of the deals that have got done and sort of ask them, what is it that has changed things? What's made these attractive? Is it the length of the term? Is it the product itself? Is it the pricing structure? And I think in every case, they've come back and said it's this new pricing structure, which I only somewhat chuckle at in that I think when we did our first fund in 1998, that's kind of how they worked. So it only took 20, is it 20? 20 years to, to get back there, but uh, it is nice to see the primary market working again. 
Bob, I think one of the things um, we heard a lot about, I'm going to say starting four or five years ago, was uh, demographics and retirement of baby boomers, for instance, could lead to a wave of demand and closed-end funds. Do you think we're starting to see any confirmation of that yet? Well, I think, yes, to answer your question, obviously the baby boomers are getting older, they're retiring, you're seeing more come out. The, the need for income it continues to be there. Clearly, interest rates aren't going anywhere, uh, at least anytime soon. In fact, if you had to handicap what the Fed does, the greater likelihood of them cutting rates is, is, is again, higher than maybe your increasing rates. So that need for income is going to be there, and like I said, it's not going away anytime soon. So that's an inherent um, uh, feature of the closed-end fund product that's going to offer demand. Um, I think to, to, to Jonathan's point, clearly uh, this product showed its resilience at the end of last year when um, there were times when, you know, it may have stayed at deep discounts. It may not necessarily recover, but I think that, that demand that is out there, you know, given the demographics in the country. And I also think, um, you know, although the IPO market at, is being revitalized, it's still very low relative to what it's been over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. Was we remember deals, uh, months were coming out where there were $4 billion of new product being done per month. You know, right now, like I said, PIMCO, you know, really rocked the waves with an $800 million deal done in one month. So I think the lack of new supply is also helping support the secondary. So I think you're right. I think, um, you know, clearly, um, you know, the demographics are supportive of, uh, of these products. No question about it. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Janice, would love to hear your thoughts on either of our two main topics, primary or secondary. Uh, also, I understand there has been some development on the regulatory front. I think some of these issues have been a little bit under the radar. If you'd like to touch on those as well, that would be great. No, sure. And, and the, the regulatory reforms primarily affect the secondary market, of course. But there are a couple of three things out there I'll touch on very high level. But they're kind of exciting because mostly no reforms are pushed out in this area. But there are three different things right now. Um, the SEC has proposed a couple of different rules, one on offering reforms to make it easier to bring close-end fund deals to market. They have also introduced rules to level the fund of funds playing field so that there is a standard set of rules and there's a little bit of controversy out there. So I think that rule may have a longer time horizon before it gets into the markets. And then there's a proposal out there to permit closed-end funds to test the waters so that you can come out quietly without landing something, uh, you know, publicly uh, with the SEC, but you can gauge interest in the product that you're trying to bring to market. And all of those things, I think, will bode well for closed-end funds going forward. Thank you, Janice. Um, you know, just kind of circling back to broad categories, um, you mentioned, Jonathan, you know, how, how much of a bounce back we've had. I think one of the areas that's had an even bigger bounce back relative to its own history and the type of assets is, is the muni funds. Um, and I think one can make kind of a, a call at this point that there's still value, although, there, you know, obviously there are risks out there because those are always long duration instruments, especially the ones that uh, use leverage. So um, if any of the three of you have thoughts there, I'd love to hear. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I just maybe add to, to what I said earlier. Um, it's always interesting when you manage money in, in the open-end world, closed-end world, um, and elsewhere, just to see correlations in terms of where investors seem to be going. Um, and we obviously get the opportunity to do that. 
Um, and I'm sure many of you have seen uh, what's been going on in the open end fund world with municipals this year. Um, I think it's the first time in a long time, certainly, that long municipals have been getting net inflows. And I think we're seeing a mirror of that um, in, the, in the closed end world. It kind of tails into a, a, a topic that I always think is a useful one to, to talk about at these kind of events, which is how do people use these things or how should people think about uh, using closed end funds? Um, and you know, the way that I think about that, if we apply it to municipals, is kind of depends what you want from a risk standpoint. Um, as you know, you've got various different durations of municipal funds. You've got various different forms of, of credit um, in them, from investment grade to, to junky high yield munis. Um, and what closed ends bring is, is that variation, if you want that variation, but with the additional opportunity that leverage brings. So uh, rather than taking credit risk, you're taking a different kind of risk, but if you're looking for a higher yielding uh, municipal opportunity in the portfolio, you can decide. Do you want to you know, junk it up? Do you want to um, take some, some more risk with, with leverage? And that's, to me, the opportunity that closed-end funds provide, not just in munis, but in, in, in a lot of the other areas that, that we manage closed-end funds. So um, I think, uh, as you say, I think uncertainty about taxes is not going to go away. I think everything that's associated with this whole salt business has is, is obviously hit people pretty hard. Um, so assuming, and it's a big assumption, but assuming that rates, both short and long, cooperate, um, I think you're right that there continues to be an opportunity in the, in the muni space. I'll, I'll just chime in real quick. Uh, Calmos is a, is a uh, leader in the convertible market. John Calmos started the firm in 1977, and convertibles is sort of our DNA. It runs through all that we do. I think um, the one nice thing about that, that product is that uh, it does very well in a period of volatility. We are actually, to, actually able to capture a large part of the upside of the equity market, but to do it with downside risk because you've got that bond component to it to offer income. So I think if, you're, if you are hesitant about getting involved in fixed income, you're hes hesitant about high yield um, uh, credit, you're he hesitant about investment grade that's longer duration, um, but you want to be in the equity market and still get some income, I think uh, volatile times that we may see this year uh, for the balance of this year and maybe going forward, I think Invertibles is a great, uh, is a great opportunity. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, just touching a little bit more on the Muni's. Um, you know, I know there's risks. I know there still might be some pressure on some of the dividends, even though borrowing costs have flattened out. But it's pretty striking to see the discounts uh, in that area still, given the wave of uh, inflows we've had on the open-end mutual fund side. So I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, Bob, another thing we had discussed uh, earlier in the week um, was your take on Z-scores and how that can be a valuable valuation tool. Would you mind touching on that? Sure. So one of the things that we try to do as, as service providers and, and with the folks in the panels as well is we come to these, these, these events and we talk about the closed-end fund business. Why? Because we think it's the right thing to do to support the industry but to support our clients because we think an educated consumer, Cy Sims was a clothier, used to say that in New York, the educated consumer is, the, is our best customer. We think the same way. And so along those lines, when there are opportunities out there in the closed-end fund space, and there are wonderful opportunities, not only with respect to the underlying assets, but the vehicle itself, which we saw at the end of last year, uh, when you saw in the fourth quarter, for example, the NAVs dropping maybe 10 or 15 percent, uh, but the stock prices were down double that, 
Now, if you don't think the world is going to come to an end, that, and you like the asset class, but you see how it's the, it's, the stock has been beaten down relative to what the NAV is, it really can be a very, very opportunistic time to get involved uh, as an entry point in some of these vehicles. And so one of the things that um, uh, is a measure of, of what the value proposition is, is what we call sort of the Z-score or the Z-factor. And what that does is, and I'll, I'll tout Naveen, uh, because on their uh, closed-end fund website, uh, or actually CEF Connect, they show what these Z-scores are for each fund out there. And I, I, uh, I, I use that as, as a wonderful example. Uh, so a Z-score is basically taking the current premium or discount, subtracting the average premium discount of whatever period you want to look at, and dividing it by the standard deviation of that period. And what that will do is it'll give you a Z-score. And that Z-score, if you think in terms of a normal distribution, all right, um, where the, the uh, events will come out normally distributed, if you get a Z-score which is more than two standard deviations one way or the other, that means that tail only happens 2.5% of the time. 95% of the events will occur in the middle. So what you saw was, at the end of last year, Z-scores approaching minus two, which means relative to how they trade through the history of that particular fund, they are really showing you wonderful value. And so um, we have these conversations at, at Calmos when we do our closed-end calls quarterly. Like I said, Naveen uh, shows this on their website for each, not the website, but the CF Connect site that they, that they uh, monitor. Um, and certainly, if you call up any, uh, any one uh, of us here at the table, we can tell you what our Z-score is for any fund that we have. So it's a really interesting way to associate value. Because again, people will look at discounts and look at premiums and so on and so forth. And some funds trade, their average trading range is maybe 2 or 3% premium for their life. Other funds may trade at average discounts 5%, okay? But just looking at that is not the way to look at it. What is its relative value to how it average trades on an average? And that's what the Z-score supplies. So I, if you're truly serious and interested in, in, in understanding this business, understanding this product for yourself or your clients, getting a grasp of that and evaluating that on a regular basis is a very important factor. Now, that doesn't say you don't look at the underlying, of course. You gotta be, you, anytime you buy any product, closed-end fund, you have to be supportive of what they're investing in. Do I like high yield? Do I like convertibles? Do I like equity? Do I like global? Whatever it is, that has to be the first and foremost. But then you look, you peel the onion back and say, okay, fine, if I want to get into this, where's the value in XYZ closed-end fund? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with, with, with what Bob just said. I think. Um, the only thing I would add, which again, I always try to, to say when talking about closed-end funds and this business of you know, peeling back the onion uh, to really kind of dig into to what they are because you know, there's a lot of funds out there, a lot of sponsors to, to choose from, um, but focusing on net asset value performance. Ultimately, that's the best way to judge what you're owning or what you uh, are looking to potentially own because that's what the investment manager is actually doing with the portfolio, not any different than say an open-end mutual fund, which is probably the first thing you would look at is NAV performance. So as frustrating at times like October or December, as frustrating as market price movements can be, ultimately if you want to know what is going on under the hood of any closed-end fund, the way to try and judge that is to dig into 
um, I would say long-term net asset value performance because that's the ultimately the performance of the manager that you're buying. And, and that's what you saw at the end of the fourth quarter. You had many of these close-end funds were actually outperforming on a net asset value basis relative to their index, whether it be the convertible index, the S&P, the MSCI. They were outperforming it, but the market was bidding down the price more than double what the decline in the NAV was, which is really when these opportunities present themselves because the fund is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's actually doing better than what it's supposed to be doing. And many of these have leverage, but they were still outperforming relative to their index. But the market was bidding them down. Why? Because it was year-end, uh, it was tax loss selling, uh, there was window dressing going on with respect to some of the portfolios. And also when volatility strikes, this is pre predominantly retail product. And if they need cash and they have Apple computer here and they've got XYZ closed-end fund here, they're going to dump the closed end because nine times out of ten, many of them don't even know why they're in it or they don't understand what's in it. And they're certainly not going to sell Apple because they look at our Apple phone all day long and they know that's not going anywhere. So um, the NAV is really the driver and that's the critical component of, the, of these products and how to assess the, their productivity. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Nicholas, did we want to turn it over to some audience Q&A or? Yeah, that would be great. Hi, um, I was interested in the comment on um, NAV performance just now. Um, how would you suggest we measure uh, closed-end funds when many of them don't provide a benchmark to assess that NAV performance? I'll take a stab at that. Um, many closed-end funds are what I will say is are hybrids. In other words, they aren't necessarily a straight equity fund. In other words, they don't, they're not an ETF like a SPY, or they're not a high yield fund that measures, that are completely investing in high yield. Many of them are hybrids um, that can invest in a number of things, convertible, high yield, uh, equity. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge to assign uh, a specific index to that. What we will do at Calamos is, for example, for, for our closed-end funds that happen to be hybrids, part of them are uh, can be in convertible and high yield, we'll do a 50-50 measure on that. Um, so that's our own internal way to do it. I think if you want to look at it from maybe a more um, industry practice way, uh, Morningstar assigns categories to each of these closed-end funds as they look and see in their own assessment for what that's worth as to what their real peer group is. And you can get information out there that will show how these funds perform both on a net asset value and an equity basis based on their peer group. So I know that's not a clean answer, but many of these funds are, are really designed to be hybrids and do multiple things uh, at multiple times, getting into multiple asset classes, which makes that more difficult. And I'll, I'll give you a simple example for Adams funds. Our energy fund is 80% exploration and production and 20% materials. And we create a blended benchmark that we put out in all of our literature and on our website. So, and it's all equity, it's all energy in various sectors of that, subsectors I should say. But, um, so we are one of the funds that will create those blended benchmarks, but it's not, we are in a much simpler structure than these multi-asset class funds.
Yes, I'm wondering how you assess the new legal risks to owning municipal bonds that flow from the outcome of the Puerto Rico sales tax bond case. The bankruptcy court in Puerto Rico uh, approved the settlement, which basically wiped out half of the value of the junior sales tax bonds, the lien that they had on the sales tax collections. So that seems to me to introduce a new risk to owning municipal bonds, a uh, risk of legal uh, developments as compared with we always understood the risk of interest rate changes and default on the part of the uh, issuer, but now we have the courts involved in ignoring uh, senior liens, not giving them full credit. I don't know whether Morgan has any views on that. John, uh, I mean, I would defer to uh, municipal investment team back in Boston and be happy to follow up with them. Uh, if you want to grab my card afterwards, do you have any views on this? Well, um, you know, we obviously talked to a lot of PMs on the Puerto Rico front, and we have for the last, you know, two years now. Um, very, very complicated and changeable situation. Um, you know, we're still hearing there is value in some Puerto Ricos. You just have to be very careful which ones you select. But I understand it's a fluid situation, and I, I would have to defer also uh, to our muni strategists um, and circle back on that. Hi, thank you. Um, the perception in the market has been there for quite a period of time that investors aren't being paid to go long-term in any debt instruments. I, I would ask the panel, what do you see as the, the sweet spot in duration for various classes of fixed income, and do you see that changing in the future at all? Well, I think um, a lot of people have come back to the point that it's important to have balance, and you can argue for value on different parts of the curve. Um, we as a firm have inched out towards the longer end lately, and I personally think it's a, com a compelling case can be made for having some kind of money market plus type instruments that are going to give you a two plus handle, as well as going far out on the end of the curve to, to get that balance and diversification. I don't know if uh, your firms have... I mean, I think that's a, a, a good strategy. I think we, as an organization, have been talking for probably a long time here about, about the importance of having lower duration assets um, in, in portfolios, and that happens to also be a, a somewhat of a sweet spot for us. But, um, you know, clearly, um, you know, when valuations become attractive enough, it, 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 it makes sense to, to extend those durations in certain areas as well. So yeah, a, a, a sort of barbell approach I think makes total sense. I mean, you, you make a good point. It's hard pressed to think in terms of going out 30 years when you can get a very similar yield at a two or three or five year level. So um, I mean, our, our thoughts are on a macroeconomic perspective, yeah, we are gonna see some slowing here. Um, across the globe. You're certainly seeing it in Europe, you're seeing it in China, and I think that will, start, will start to impact um, the U.S., although you've recently seen earnings beats in the first quarter, you have to realize those beats are because those earnings um, have been reduced largely from where they were in the fourth quarter and, and, and the third quarter of the prior year. So um, I think the question now is is, is, is it worth the risk to go out there? I, I, as I said earlier, I think that there's more, there's more likelihood that you'll see rate 
um, decreases going forward than rate increases. And if that's the case, um, I think you, perhaps you really have to think in terms about going, uh, going anywhere far out on the yield curve. But again, it's, it's all value propositions where you get in. Investors uh, get frustrated with the discounts on closed-end funds. And despite all this happening, there's been very little happening as far as changing the structure to be more reflective of net asset value or basically changing. I know there's been a few closed-end funds that have done that. But what is the hesitancy to doing that? It seems that uh, the sponsors, for one reason or another, prefer to have a closed-end format rather than an open-end format, even if there's a discount. Well, the closed-end format gives you, gives the portfolio manager um, an advantage in that they don't have to worry about cash coming in or cash going out. They don't have to have a percentage of the assets invested in cash. That's one benefit. Um, also, the benefit of leverage. When we talk about low interest rates right now, um, clearly, um, in an environment that where you're only paying out on a floating rate basis, LIBOR plus a spread, um, leverage has been clearly beneficial. So I think when you look at the returns of closed-end funds over time, they've, they've performed very, very well. It's a, different, it's a different investment vehicle than a mutual fund. Okay, it's a little bit more riskier because you have the leverage in there. Um, the returns are different, but all, and also you're getting the income stream, which I think is a benefit too. So I think there are features to a closed-end fund. That, uh, that an open-end fund doesn't necessarily get. So I think they can, those with ETFs, they can certainly coexist, and I certainly suggest that they all be considered for your client's portfolio. Yeah, I guess, and I know we're close to, to time, I'd just say, you know, the cynic would say, of course, you like managing closed-end funds because they're captive assets and they're not subject to inflows and outflows. Uh, investment teams would say they like managing nothing more than they like managing closed-end funds for, frankly, exactly that reason. Uh, they can take long-term views, they can invest in things that they might not otherwise be able to invest in in, a, in an open-end format. Um, you know, discounts, as you note, are frustrating and can be frustrating. They do, though, come and go. Uh, there are times of opportunity, such as we had at the end of last year, where um, investors can just get attracted to the, to, the, to the asset structure purely based on valuations. Um, but in terms of, of a vehicle, um, you know, I think we probably all up here believe that um, if you could ever solve the discount um, problem forever, I'd say more assets should be invested in the closed-end fund structure than, than, than are today. And, and uh, um, you know, hopefully long will... Uh, Long will closed ends remain. I know we're, we're down to time. Let's take two seconds. But if, if the end of last year didn't prove the validity of closed-end funds, nothing did. A mutual fund had to liquidate at the end of last year. Money coming back in. They had to give it cash. Worst time in the world to be getting out would have been then. You would have missed that whole ride coming back up, which the closed-end funds were able to enjoy, whereas the mutual fund investor that cashed out took their cash and sat there, waited for the whole first quarter to go by. They missed the whole opportunity. We have a whole series of writings on our website um, under the moniker Stay Invested, and it's it's a true principle. You, the closed-end fund vehicle is an excellent long-term investment. They do produce income. You know, our funds don't use leverage. They're internally managed. They have a 6% distribution commitment. 
that we have met or exceeded since 2011 when we implemented it, there is such a broad spectrum of opportunity under the closed end fund structure. I mean, it's really worth delving into and I'm backstop, the, the discount is a conundrum and they constantly talk about, you know, it falls back to investor sentiment, which is a way of saying we don't know. But I, I would suggest also one thing that you can look at is the correlation between NAV and the discount. That's a very helpful um, number to look at over time to see how closely they remain aligned. So you can get in, you can get the benefit of all your distributions, and you're, you're not disadvantaged over time. Thank you, Janice, Jonathan, Rob. Bob, I should say, sorry about that. Uh, looks like uh, we're done on time, so I'm gonna turn it back over to Nicholas. Thank you all.